Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with Logan Wright, director and head of China Markets Research at the Rhodium Group. He, alongside his colleague Dan Rosen, just released a book-length treatment entitled Credit and Credibility Risks to China's Economic Resilience through CSIS for free. Logan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate it. So first off, why did you decide to tackle this question? Well, this is the culmination of a number of different strands of work we've been uh, engaged in at the Rhodium Group for several years. And fundamentally, the story that was most interesting to us was that everyone's talked for years about why China might face a financial crisis. And the case there is um, it's obvious. It is not necessarily a, a new story. Certainly, there are reasons to be more concerned about the development of the financial system over the last uh, five to six years in particular, given the fact that it's roughly doubled in size since 2012. But if you will, the, the analytical discussion of whether China will have a financial crisis is pretty well-trodden ground. What, what's less studied in our view and what was most interesting to us was why has China avoided the problems of other emerging markets who have engaged in similar patterns of credit expansion over the past uh, 30 to 50 years or so? And therefore, we wanted to do a really deep dive into the factors that have kind of been used most frequently to explain China's financial resilience. And what emerged from that and what really prompted the study as it is uh, presented is that many of those explanations are increasingly unconvincing. And in, in reality, they kind of can all gravitate around uh, three potential explanations, two economic and, and one uh, essentially political in nature. But what we think was really unexamined was fundamentally why is China's system behaving differently than other emerging markets? So, um, so the, well, the first part of this, for the first part of this interview, I want to walk through the first few chapters of your work where you give a brief uh, and rather compelling history of the Chinese financial system since 1990. So you write that in the unreformed system in the 90s, uh, many issues came into play that are still rather dominant in today's financial system. You write that it was bank dominant. There is a strong moral hazard. There's favoritism towards SOEs, and it's generally anti-private credit. There's a slow development of corporate bonds. Few institutional investors leading to casino-like equity markets. And finally, very little foreign participation in the Chinese financial markets. Do you want to pick one or two of those and, and maybe highlight them, the ones that you think have particular resonance um, from the 90s to today? Sure. I mean, I think the uh, what's one of the most interesting dynamics within the Chinese financial system is that uh, banks continue to have this strong preference for lending to state firms and a strong preference for lending on the basis of government guarantees and fixed assets as collateral uh, for loans. And what that, in essence, does is it always puts private firms who don't have considerable fixed assets as collateral for borrowing at a disadvantage. And because of the net interest margins that have been essentially guaranteed throughout the Chinese system, uh, it incentivizes volume-based lending, which always encourages more loans to state-owned enterprises. 
meaning that it's far easier for a bank to make one loan for a billion yuan with a government guarantee rather than a thousand loans for a million yuan on a transaction cost basis. So the bankers are lazy. (laughs) It's not necessarily the bankers are lazy, but bankers are risk averse in a context in which uh, you are essentially incentivized to take similar risks to others within the system. And if the financial system is focused on growth, which the financial system is should grow consistent with a developing economy, uh, it obviously makes sense to facilitate, if you're an individual financial institution, the fastest growth of assets possible with a relative minimum of risk. And in the Chinese political context, that has always meant lending to firms with government guarantees and fixed assets as collateral, which has tended to uh, disincentivize private firms. To really incentivize lending to private firms, you need to not only uh, lend on a different basis with some confidence in the financial information that's being provided, but you need a higher net interest margin to justify the additional risk. And this is often what occurs in term in the context of the Chinese system, where government guarantees throughout the system end up distorting a risk premia and a potential pricing of a number of different financial assets because many assets are perceived as essentially guaranteed. So what's what's striking is that that uh, dynamic was obviously present throughout the 1990s, but it's still present today. And most banks in the post-financial crisis period ended up lending extensively to local government financing platforms and other firms with essentially implicit guarantees. And that's really what uh, facilitated the very rapid growth of the financial system um, in, the post, uh, in the post-crisis period. So let's, let's, let's talk about this first period from 2000 to 2008, pre-global financial crisis. Well, pre-global financial crisis, you had very strong rates of nominal growth within the Chinese uh, economy. So you had nominal GDP growth. You know, I'm not off the top, don't have it off the top of my head, but it would have been averaging around 15% um, or higher uh, throughout most of the decade from um, in from post-WTO accession from 2001 to, to 2008. Uh, you know, really picking up in 2004 to 2007, very rapid rates of growth. And in that environment where nominal GDP growth is so strong, um, virtually anything you lend to will probably be profitable. And so it therefore creates incentives. Anything you invest in will also probably be profitable. So therefore it creates incentives for firms to access as much bank credit as possible. Um, obviously, in that environment, you also had a pretty strong pickup in inflation. So essentially, the PBOC moved to trying to use administrative controls um, over the quantity of credit uh, to try to control some of those inflationary outbreaks that occurred during uh, the previous decade. But the financial system in that in that period from 2001 to 2008 had just been restructured post the Asian financial crisis, part of the Central Economic Work uh, Commission that Zhu Rongji had set up in order to restructure the banking system after the Asian financial crisis with many of the economic players at that time, you know, taking leading roles in the financial institutions at that time. Uh, Zhou Xiaochuan obviously came out of that, the PBOC governor from 2002 to 2017. 
obviously came out of um, that process and was one of the key reformist voices therein. But you didn't have a sustainability problem within the Chinese financial system from 2002 to 2007. You had an efficiency problem because they were still allocating too much credit to largely state-owned borrowers and there was still a preferential act. It was still difficult for private sector firms to access credit precisely because you were needing to control the overall volumes. But you didn't really have a sustainability problem because credit growth was roughly in line with nominal GDP growth at that time. There had been some banking system restructurings and recapitalizations that took place in 2003 and 2005. And then you had the banks preparing to list on overseas exchanges in 2006 and 2007. And, you know, that process essentially hit reset on a lot of the Asian financial crisis era lending. And then you had a period where those institutions could continue to to grow their way out of whatever non-performing loan problem that was there. Because from 2000 to 2000 and uh, to 2008, you basically had about a, a had a four four to five time expansion of the banking system, and so that allowed you to grow out of those problems. Sure. Um, one of the one of the interesting points you make in this piece is that even though at this in this period the numbers seem so enormous, you know, four x five x growth in the financial system, you know, these fifteen percent growth rates, it's important to understand the base in which China was building off, which was incredibly artificially depressed coming out of the coming out of the Mao era. Correct. Well, right, especially in financial institutions. And, and this is a point we, we make in the book. China's compound rate of growth looks remarkable over any period of time, uh, objectively. But it never had to be that high to catch up to the same level of economic development that we're seeing today if there hadn't simply been an artificial constraint on it from Maoist experiments throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. If China had started at just a you know, reasonable developing country rate of growth, you wouldn't have needed to see a reasonable developing country rate of uh, per capita GDP. You wouldn't have needed to see a, you know, huge dramatic upswing in GDP growth over time. And in many ways, that concern, I think, animated Chinese leadership very early in uh, the process of reform and opening in the 1980s and 1990s. There was always a concern that China had been behind and needed to catch up. And therefore, often fast growth, even if it generated financial risks, was prioritized over more sustainable rates of growth. And that essential policy bias still does uh, persist in, in certain ways within, uh, within the Chinese system. The difference was in the 80s and 90s, those trade-offs were not that severe, precisely because there was a lot of catch-up growth to be done, not only in uh, the economy, but in financial services as well. And every financial system reaches a point at which the benefits of deepening or expanding access to uh, financial services in, in different forms to households and corporates you know, reaches a point of diminishing returns. And that's really the discussion. There was no real uh, risk of them hitting that period of maximum financial deepening um, or a saturation point in financial deepening anywhere in until in the post-crisis period, the post-financial crisis sure. period. Sure. The, the the line that stuck out to me was you're saying that in the in the piece, if China was at Nicaragua level, so around two thousand dollars GDP per capita, it would have only needed to average about three point five um, percent GDP growth to get where it is today, starting in you know the eighties and nineties, which is really striking uh, given that 
to get a sense of how how backward China really was at the time. So you did a perfect lead-in for me to talk through the financial crisis. So what what happened and how did the response uh, from China differ from the way the U.S. did its stimulus package? Well, exactly. The China wasn't affected as directly via the global financial crisis, except primarily in terms of uh, trade finance. So you had a a situation where Chinese exports dropped precipitously consistent with the slowdown in global growth, and all of a sudden dollar trade financing wasn't available. But in essence, in the post-crisis world, the rest of uh, the world was looking for a very aggressive pattern of largely fiscally-led stimulus to close the output gap and try to stabilize the global economy back to more reasonable footing. China unveiled in November 2008 probably one of the more aggressive stimulus packages available, which was billed at the time as a 4 trillion yuan stimulus effort, and with the headline number, of course, attracting a lot of attention. In reality, it was much, much larger than that because of the form in which they launched this post-crisis stimulus. And that was because they used the banking system rather than the central government budget and official fiscal issuance in order to launch a credit expansion and what was largely an infrastructure-led expansion. Credit growth exploded in 2009 and 2010, and it was led by local governments. So so could you explain how, you know, what what Obama did of, you know, just having the federal government directly spend um, versus the Chinese um, versus the Chinese strategy of just cr- uh, cranking up credit and lending actually means the number uh, means the amount injected into the economy ends up being a lot bigger than what than what uh, other governments around the world did well essentially what uh, China had done was it released some of the constraints that they had placed on bank lending uh, for local governments and by releasing some of those constraints, the localities were incentivized to set up new companies, uh, local government financing vehicles that all of a sudden had clean balance sheets to inject those companies with forms of capital, which was typically in the form of land, and then to borrow aggressively from local banks on the basis of that land at, or the promise of government repayment for an infrastructure project as collateral. Banks and local governments didn't need very strong incentives to start this process because growth had been so strong in previous years. They already had very strong incentives to launch these types of projects. What was constraining them was central government control over issues such as land permissions as well as the overall availability of credit. And after the financial crisis, those were out the window. If you look at a developed economy, for example, it was much more conventional offsetting uh, the deleveraging that was going on in the household sector with a releveraging in the government sector and trying to essentially provide some sort of government offset to what would otherwise have been a more dramatic contraction in uh, household consumption and business investment uh, by changing uh, those incentives with some degree of government support. That played a role in the Chinese stimulus, but largely this was about unleashing local governments. And once unleashed, that really changed the balance of power in Chinese monetary policy and in the overall balance of economic policy, precisely because local governments essentially could hold the central government ransom saying, 
well, we've already started all these projects. If you want us to stop, there'll be an immediate fiscal cost to stopping these half-built bridges, tunnels, other roads in their tracks. You'll have to pay for that right away, and you can't really afford to do so because those projects haven't been completed yet. Or you can just let us complete them. But in the end, allowing that completion requires additional credit. And with localities still having strong incentives to compete against each other to drive growth, that created almost a, an ongoing pipeline of local government infrastructure projects that was very difficult for the central government to ever slow down. So I imagine aside from these uh, these macro things, just coming down to the person level, like it seems like a lot of people were getting rich off these loans. Um, and and there's also a, a lot of personal incentives from, um, a, you know, personal wealth perspective, as well as a, you know, promotion up the CCP ladder perspective to, to, to keep this going from the um, not from the regulatory side, but from the, the local and, and provincial government perspective. Is that is that a fair characterization? Well, I think what's fair to say is that there's any time there's an expansion of the money supply and and the Chinese money supply almost doubled uh, between 2008 and uh, 2011. Um, you anytime there's an expansion of that size, you are literally doubling the amount of money in an economy. Um, that is going to create um, all sorts of incentives for misallocation of credit, whether that's in the form of uh, official misallocation for investment via banks, or you know, more personal reallocation via corru- via corruption and other uh, transaction related costs that are obviously um, still an ongoing problem in China and elsewhere, where infrastructure driven lending is is uh, is such a dominant proportion um, of economic activity. So it, it's fair to say that there were strong political incentives at that time to make sure that the stabilization in the economy was entrenched and then worry about the consequences later. And in reality, China didn't have to worry about the consequences of the post-crisis credit expansion until starting in 2011 when they started to see inflation pick up once again uh, in the early part of the year. Sure. So let's let's come to late 2011, early 2012, and walk us through the dilemma that the banks, the banks face with this inflation, uh, with this dose of inflation. Exactly. So this is a critical turning point for the direction of the Chinese financial system um, in many ways for for reasons that had very little to do with uh, China itself. There were some external factors, particularly linked to the European debt crisis, that really played a role in changing the way that the Chinese banking system itself operated. And I know that's a very strange thing to say, but you have to put it in the context of how the banking system had been growing for years and years. You know, in the past, you had very steady growth of deposits. You had very steady loans were essentially given to state-owned enterprises. So there wasn't a lot of shadow banking activity until 2011. Shadow banking was largely a way to circumvent credit restrictions imposed by uh, central authorities. So in 2010 and 2011, you had the reimposition because Chinese banks were essentially struggling with uh, the Chinese economy was struggling with inflation. You had the reimposition of de facto credit quotas, um, and you started to see credit growth overall. You had reserve requirement hikes for banks 
basically locking up liquidity on the central bank's balance sheet. And you started to see credit overall start to slow. Well, banks still found credit profitable uh, at that time. So one of the things they started doing is collaborating with third-party institutions like trust companies, like asset management companies. And what they would do is they would continue to make loans as before, but then after the loan was made, um, separate it and sell essentially or warehouse the asset on a third-party institution's balance sheet. And by doing that, they would basically provide a fee to the third-party institution for doing so. And essentially, they would create a a new asset, which is a claim on a third-party institution that would have much of the characteristics of a loan, but wouldn't necessarily count against your credit quota in 2011. Now, that was in 2010 and 2011. That was very common. And it was becoming increasingly common as a way to avoid credit quotas. But it wasn't really a core business of the banks. It was largely uh, just a a bit of regulatory arbitrage on the asset side, um, which was uh, irritating uh, the central bank because it was frustrating their ability to control credit. But inevitably, when monetary tightening continues for two to three quarters in China, this is a system that depends very heavily on short-term interest rates because many of the loans in the system are less than one year in duration. So as short-term interest rates started rising, all of a sudden there really was a contraction in credit demand in the economy. And in 2011, you saw that most distinctly in the property sector. When the property sector started losing its demand for credit, you really started to see a broad-based decline in the economy in China that was also coinciding with, as I mentioned before, uh, the European debt crisis or the peak of the European debt crisis in late 2011. And that combination of factors started producing, for the first time, uh, pretty substantial capital flows from China. Uh, European banks started pulling back from indirect loans, wholesale loans that they had made to mainland institutions. And as a result, China, for the first time, faced a situation where deposits onshore uh, weren't growing very fast. They were starting to slow substantially. And so the basic funding base for the banking system had uh, come under pressure for the first time for for years and years with very steady inflows under the trade surplus and under investment surpluses because the renminbi was appreciating there were always reasons for speculative capital to flow into china uh, deposits typically grew faster than loans um, pboc was trying to control loan growth but always wanted to see deposit growth that was always had no problem really with deposit growth being strong it was a question of how banks would be deploying those deposits for their own economic purposes. And now all of a sudden you had this pressure emerging on the deposit bases of the banks in late 2011 and deposit growth started weakening. That really changed the game for the way the Chinese banking system operated. And it also changed the situation vis-a-vis the renminbi because for the first time, even though China was running a trade surplus, capital outflows were larger than that trade surplus, and we're starting to put pressure on the currency itself. So it's an interesting theme, uh, these two uh, contravening forces. On the one hand, you write that authorities allowed unfettered financial innovation and regulatory arbitrage to thrive. And, but at the same time, you do have these regulators 
who just seem just like such sorry officials. They try their best, but the but the banks and the local governments are can get around almost everything they throw at them. So this tension seems like a really uh, interesting one that that kind of plays out over the course of this whole story. Yeah, I don't think the regulators are, are hapless in any respect. I think they are institutionally disempowered vis-a-vis local governments. Um, local governments outrank and local government officials typically outrank uh, Chinese regulators within the overall institutional structure. But more fundamentally, leadership would rather default to more local government excesses at the expense of regulatory overreach, so to speak. And this was linked to the broader political decision to make sure that the economy is stable first and going all the way back to that post-1980s emphasis on faster growth, make sure that we can still maintain a rapid rate of growth. And if there are negative consequences of that, well, that's the regulator's job to make sure they don't get out of control, not to necessarily stop those uh, negative consequences in their tracks or to intervene before they happen. I mean, PBOC and CBRC were concerned about the post-crisis credit expansion as early as May 2009. And that, you know, obviously didn't have much of an impact on the way in which the credit expansion continued. But it's not fair to say, I think, that the regulators were just powerless or, or didn't really understand what was happening. In many ways, regulators were incentivized to keep growing the financial system at the same time. Sure. So you also had this competition among different regulatory bodies to grow assets internally. And you didn't really, until this year, have a, a lot of central oversight of the shadow banking system as a whole. I like to say that wealth management products, when they were created in China, were a regulatory orphan. No one really created them or said that wealth management products should exist. So therefore, there were no one's responsibility at any point. And when they took different forms and when shadow banking took different forms, uh, it was obviously there was not a very strong regulatory response. So let's bring us back now to, to June 2013, the closest China's come to a true financial crisis. So what happened here and what were the, um, uh, what were the, broader, the broader impacts of the way the government responded? <laughs> um, June 2013, you know, is sort of the way I would say it's, it's sort of the end of innocence um, in Chinese financial management. It's the end of innocence for the Chinese financial system. Uh, from June 2013 onward, uh, basically... Chinese authorities had to be constantly aware of the potential for uh, a crisis within their money markets and aware that they needed to engage in crisis management alongside regular monetary policymaking. And what happened in June 2013, I think, is uh, it's a great story to it's a great story to tell because it's something that they've been trying to avoid ever since. And the consequences of avoiding another June 2013-type short-end squeeze in interest rates has been to really expand the shadow banking system further, particularly in 2015 and 2016. And so in our view, many of the problems that emerged in the Chinese financial system with the stock market bubble in 2015, with the currency devaluation in late 2015 as well, with uh, the need for supply-side structural reform in 2016, and now the deleveraging effort are very much a consequence of the realization 
that the June 2013 interbank market crisis was always a, a possibility. What happened basically was that Chinese banks were were reliant upon wealth management products, uh, meaning these short-term commercial paper type deposit type structures that needed to be rolled over every one to three months uh, for increasing marginal growth in the banking system as a whole. And the PBOC, CBRC top leadership was aware of this. They weren't necessarily happy about it. Uh, they saw this as a potential source of risk. And increasingly, the, the money raised via wealth management products was being deployed into shadow assets. So more loans being made to non-bank financial institutions, more restructuring of loans into different forms that Beijing could not easily manage or regulate. That's not a stable financial system. So you'd seen, starting from this period in 2011 to all of a sudden June 2013, you had a system that was no longer funded just by deposits. It was funded increasingly at the margin by these commercial paper-type instruments. It was no longer making loans just to state-owned enterprises. It was making loans to some local government entities in contravention of credit policy, to property developers, to anyone willing to offer higher interest rates, even if that activity was riskier, as well as engaging in some outright speculation in the money markets. And you had also seen suddenly changes in uh, balance of payments flows. So you couldn't rely upon external sources to keep generating liquidity for the banking system. Sometimes capital outflows would dwarf um, current account inflows, and you'd see a drain in deposits from the system. And all that set up for what happened in June, because we were in the midst of what in financial markets we called the taper tantrum, where Bernanke had started to discuss the possibility of tapering support via the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And that caused a pretty sharp sell-off in emerging markets and emerging market currencies and started to create some pressure on the renminbi. That wasn't really what caused the June 2013 crisis in China, but it was certainly a factor that contributed to its severity. June is always a really difficult month for liquidity within the Chinese money markets and has uh, typically you do see short-term interest rates rise uh, during that month. And the PBOC chose a, a, a relatively mundane event, uh, which was a default on an interbank payment between two mid-sized commercial banks in order to teach a lesson to the banking system for relying upon these shadow, bank, shadow instruments. So usually what the PBOC would do if they saw an interbank market default, short-term rates would rise, and this happened on June 6th. Short-term rates would rise, then the Open Market Operations Department would sort of survey uh, demand for, for short-term liquidity, and that would be provided in order to prevent any uh, significant defaults. But that after surveying for that demand the next day, the bank didn't provide any liquidity. And so then there was a holiday, um, the Dragon Boat holiday, which was three days. And when the PBOC came back from that holiday, they didn't say anything. And all of a sudden, money markets had to grapple with the fact that the PBOC wouldn't necessarily be there to support money market conditions. After the next week um, came about... The PBOC actually held a meeting with commercial banks that was was documented in a, a circular that they released the week afterwards, in which apparently the message was, you know, help will not be forthcoming. You need to sort out your asset and liability mismatches. And 
basically right after that took place, um, all hell broke loose in the money markets because suddenly banks had to hedge and reprice against an additional risk, which was the risk that the PBOC wouldn't be there to support basic functioning in the market. And it wasn't that anyone was concerned that you know you couldn't deal with the agricultural bank, you couldn't deal with ICBC, they wouldn't be around the next day the way that counterparty solvency risk really uh, ricocheted around the global financial crisis. Uh, it was more about counterparty liquidity risk. In other words, I don't want to do business with you because I'm not sure the PBOC is going to provide you with enough support. And so therefore, we might do business next month, but I'm waiting for their signal. And so, 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 it, so the counterparty risk again. This is key. Became a question of to what extent does the PBOC like trust believe that you're important, as opposed to um, you know more fundamental uh, uh, fundamental questions about your um, your balance sheet and whatnot. It, exactly. And so all of a sudden you had short term money market rates rising, and when that happened, it it caused the structure of funding that had been created under wealth management products to all of a sudden implode. Because if you were holding a wealth management product that was going to return over three months, say, 5 6%, um, and you had the ability to redeem it, interbank market rates were suddenly 8 10%. Um, you could just redeem the product and start to lend out that money on your own. So redemptions of these products started surging. And when that happened, all of a sudden, banks had to borrow more money to meet the redemptions. So that process continued, and pretty soon, there were absolutely no lenders left in the money markets. And that happened in just about six days from the initial PBOC signal to uh, June 20th, when short-term money market rates in China basically rose to 20-30%, meaning that there was basically no liquidity left in the system. And when that took place, all of a sudden, all sorts of asset markets started selling off. First, money market funds faced big redemptions. The equity market sold off uh, about 10% in just a day and a half. And at that point, the PBOC called time on their experiment around June 25th, I believe, and started injecting liquidity once again and reinforcing that they would always be there to provide financial stability over time. So what, before, so before we yeah. go to the, um, uh, the 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 consequences, I'm curious if you have any anecdotes from that from that week in June. Um, what was the emotion of the folks you were talking to? Uh, you know, were you on the beach? Like, what was the what was what was your personal experience? Well, I, I, the the week and the month is indelibly etched in my memory because I got was married at the the first of, on June first in 2013. Oh, Jesus! And so uh, <laughs> the first interbank market default. We we weren't on honeymoon or anything, but the first interbank market default occurred basically the end of that week after we were married. And I told my wife, I, I said, all right, of all the things that could have gone wrong uh, during our time off, um, this is the one I'm sort of most prepared for. So it's okay. Uh, but this was, it was still an all hands on deck kind of moment trying to assess what banks were doing and how they were uh, managing these pressures. I don't think that the widespread stress really hit it was very apparent to the money markets, and stress in financial systems always emerges in the money markets first, but it was very apparent in the money markets um, earlier in that month. I don't think it really became – it in essence escalated in terms of a story from first, you know, this is a very strange thing happening in Chinese money markets, so it's sort of a page three story in the Asia edition of a major newspaper like the Wall Street Journal or the FT. Um 
to suddenly becoming this is a major event in Chinese financial markets. So it was a dominant uh, story regionally, so to speak. And then all of a sudden it became this is China's layman moment um, in the eyes of some uh, of some reporters. And, and that's, you know, there, there's ways to quibble with that comparison, but the, the level of stress was severe. And so, so it escalated so, very quickly over the course of, of that month, and people started to uh, take the threat a lot more seriously, and the PBOC had to as well. So you write that in, in the PBOC's response, the moral hazard, which we talked about earlier in this podcast, was entrenched as opposed to broken. So can you unpack that Sure. Second. Basically, the PBOC was trying to send a signal that you were on your own. You needed to manage these asset liability mismatches on your own if you're a banking system, and we will not come to your aid. Uh, the system almost came to a screeching halt when they did that. And therefore, in the future, if you're a bank and you're looking at the rise in short-term money market rates, are you worried? You're not that worried. Precisely because you know that the last time this happened, the PBOC basically had to back down um, and they couldn't really enforce any discipline. So in essence, it highlighted the difficulties of using monetary policy tools uh, to really slow the shadow banking system. And sort of bringing us up to date, it, it highlighted the need under the current deleveraging campaign to start using a regulatory, a, a more enhanced regulatory apparatus, which for years under the disparate and competing regulatory institutions, the CBRC, the CIRC, they're actively competing to sort of grow uh, financial uh, asset bases. That never existed. So what happened after 2013, after June 2013 is there was another similar spike that emerged in December 2013. Um, and then there was another one in January 2014, and the PBOC didn't want to be very public about uh, injecting liquidity to calm those down, but the markets perceived the signal that they would basically have to, to back down and would have to provide liquidity in times of stress. And after that, you saw, as a result, a lot more stability in short-term money market rates. For years and years, the PBOC had allowed money market rates to move in line with demand for credit, and it provided them with reasonable visibility into the overall demand for credit in the system. But now that volatility, that that rise, that signal that they were receiving was suddenly a potential source of systemic risk. So you had to control sure. it. And when they started controlling it, that had other consequences, which meant that um, short-term money market rates were all of a sudden very stable, which means you could start borrowing in the repo market. And from 2013 to 2016, um, turnover, daily turnover in China's repo market expanded basically about 500%. And I think that brings us up to today. So at the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about uh, the sort of explanation of over these past 20 years, even given the extraordinarily extraordinary growth in China's financial system and credit markets, there hasn't been a crisis. And you talk about three different potential rationales for why that may be the case. So let's walk through the first one. One of the things you often hear, particularly from Chinese policymakers, is that the high savings rate will act as a buffer in terms of any credit crunch. So what is this? unpack this argument and explain why it doesn't carry too much water, in your opinion. Sure. It's not that it doesn't carry water. It's just that it's, a, it's often... Um, it's often unveiled in a very sort of... Um, a very cursory manner to assume that therefore China has uh, ammunition to potentially 
to potentially offset any short-term uh, pressures that emerge within the financial system. And essentially, if you have a high savings rate, that means that that's a high rate of foregone consumption, uh, which means that some instant and China's savings rate is around 46% of GDP, extremely high um, by uh, in global by global standards. The issue in and therefore you would assume that uh, government could effectively re- if there was any any if there was ever any shortfall in liquidity or in financial resources available within the domestic system that the government could simply reallocate resources. Um, in order to meet that because you were still saving uh, a considerable – there was still a, a lot of foregone consumption and savings building within the financial system. Uh, the problem with that in our view is that it's it's not exactly easy given where savings in China is concentrated uh, to do so and the reforms that you would need – to unlock those savings are really longer-term phenomena. They're, they're, they're mainly changes in tax policy. Um, savings in China is concentrated, in essence, among state-owned enterprises, where, of course, state-owned enterprises um, are do have resources the government can compel. But that's been an ongoing debate for 30 years about exactly how to force state-owned enterprises to contribute more to, uh, to state purposes and to uh, to increase dividends from those enterprises, to undo, to increase competition among those institutions uh, as well. It's concentrated among private sector corporates who are essentially cut off from the financial system. And therefore, it's hard to, to really see how they become integrated into the financial system so that you can reallocate um, uh, resources. And then it's constant savings is also concentrated at the household level among wealthier households. So uh, which is a, a common issue across uh, many different economies. So it's not that you don't have uh, a high national savings rate, but there's no easy way to, in the event of short-term liquidity stress, to unlock those savings to really offset any shortfall in domestic liabilities. And that's, in essence, what we see as the as one of the issues involved. The other, the other is that to re- China is actively trying to reduce their savings rate over time. Um, and the high rate of savings is is a problem for economic development. You need to be moving to a more consumption driven outlook and a more consumption driven growth model, and therefore um, savings is going to need to come. Uh, the savings rate isn't going to need to come down over time, and so it's not necessarily you know a consistent argument in our view to say that well China has this great buffer against financial crisis that they're actively trying to. Uh, reduce over time. That's certainly the truth, but it, it, it's more accurate to say that um, you know the savings rate, in essence, reflects some of the distortions within the Chinese financial system. It is not easy to reallocate savings within the Chinese system or to uh, change that savings rate very quickly over time. So, turning now to the second argument that that you don't quite uh, think would be useful in a financial crisis, the the line that. Oh, Chinese debt is domestically held. It's denominated in RMB. So, uh, you know, unlike the the Asian financial crisis or other financial crises around the world, where the domestic government couldn't just print money uh, to get out of it, we have this ultimate lever where um, we'll be able to handle our own debt. Right, and and of course, there's truth to this argument that most Chinese debt is. Uh, is domestically held. There's no external creditors uh, involved in most of the post-crisis credit expansion. I mean, China does have um, some external debt problems, but nothing that would be considered a 
a, a real systemic risk um, that couldn't be offset with sales of foreign exchange reserves, for example, um, and nor would probably you see considerable pressure uh, emerging all at the same t- all at the same time. But the bigger issue with the domestic uh, domestic debt issue is that it's contrary to financial reform. So, in uh, the growth of China's first domestic debt is not immune from default pressures. It just means it introduces new pressures domestically to manage those risks, and you essentially have to force losses on one institution or another within the domestic economy, which is, frankly, a pretty difficult political choice. Uh, China's dealing with this right now in terms of deciding how to allow local governments to, um, uh, to refinance or restructure some of their debt uh, that they have incurred, especially the implicit debt levels. So there's a question of most of the structure of China's debt is basically held in corporate forms, which means it's at higher interest rates, very expensive to service. Why do I say corporate forms? Because a lot of these are essentially loans to local government financing vehicles, which can be state-owned corporates at the local level or in de facto loans to, to state-owned enterprises. Uh, you know, the average interest rate on a lot of those loans throughout the Chinese system is a bit north of 6%. When the system is three times GDP, that means you're paying around 15% of GDP in interest every year to the banking system. Even though that is a domestic problem, it still requires uh, quite a, deal, a, a good deal of political management uh, to offset it, and there's still considerable risks of default within the problems of within a domestic uh, debt-dominated landscape. External creditors in many ways might have introduced a little more caution and restraint into the Chinese financial system than a purely domestic creditor base uh, has done so far. And so, you know, that is one issue that when the debt problem is large enough and expensive enough, the fact that the debt is domestically held doesn't necessarily reduce the risk. And the second point is that most people say, well, China can just print money. Um, the issue is, of course, that that process is completely contrary to the nature of financial reform. Yes, you can take action on any individual day to prevent um, probably a crisis from developing that day. But you don't, in doing so, you don't necessarily reduce the risk of a problem in uh, the medium term. Often when you discuss this question uh, with other analysts, you get into a, this question of timeframes. You know, nothing in the long term with China looks very sustainable because you've seen very rapid rates of credit growth relative to GDP, well above any historical precedence. As we mentioned in, in the book, you're talking about in the post-crisis expansion, $29 trillion in bank asset growth relative to just over $7 trillion in nominal GDP growth. So none of that looks sustainable over the long term. But in the short term, you also can't necessarily see a pressure point that uh, China doesn't have state capacity to manage. The, the interesting thing in the medium term when you think about this is that China doesn't necessarily want to identify and solve all of the uh, problems that are emerging within the financial system. To reform the system and to make it more sustainable over the medium term, you have to allow a certain degree of risk to materialize. You need to be better pricing credit risk. You need defaults to occur. And so, and this is where we get to what we think are the most plausible scenarios for real financial stress in the Chinese system. It's oh, when, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's, we'll get there. it's when all of a sudden those conditions change. 
precisely like what happened in the interbank market crisis in 2013, all of a sudden market participants had to reevaluate um, when the Chinese government would intervene and print money to resolve certain problems. So far, that has been a very low threshold of any immediate financial stress would cause a government response. That cannot be the de facto uh, response mechanism over time. And this is sort of what we discuss in the study. Because of the increasing complexity of the financial system, uh, the government is being forced to sort of extend that government credibility into increasingly peripheral and risky asset markets. And so identifying, just in response to the the overall problem of, well, why can't they just print money? Uh, identifying instances of financial stress and responding to them is not the primary challenge. Uh, you can certainly identify where stress pops up. You can certainly respond. But reforming the system over time requires identifying those instances of financial stress and in certain conditions not responding, in certain conditions allowing that risk uh, to be priced. And if you don't do that, if you just identify every single threat and respond to it with additional um, expansion of the central bank's balance sheet or additional money printing, uh, you'll generate other risks in the system. I mean, notably uh, pressure on the exchange rate, which we can discuss. Um, but you know, the the 2013 interbank market crisis is really, I think, a, a byproduct of this because you were responding to one source of pressure within the system and ended up creating a much larger shadow banking system in response to your attempt to control uh, the funding growth of a much smaller one. Yeah, it's, it, it seems another theme here we have is these half measures end up being counterproductive in the long run. So the one pillar which all of this rests on essentially is the PBOC's credibility and the market's belief that at the end of the day, the government will not let terrible, terrible things happen to the financial system and the Chinese economy as a whole. So why do you think this is the, this is the, the clearest explanation? And what are the implications of that, um, of that trust in the government being what's holding up the, the whole system here? Sure. I mean, I think that when you, when you break it down, none of the other macroeconomic or political um, arguments really start to explain how this system could have kept growing uh, for so long. The joke I always used to make was, you know, moral hazard isn't a problem, it's a strategy. Uh, this is exactly how the system has grown so rapidly uh, for so for so long, because if as long as there was an expectation that some government entity somewhere was on the hook for this risk, you didn't have to worry about pricing that risk uh, yourself if you were a financial institution. And therefore, you were happy to keep extending credit on the basis of an expectation that if there were any trouble in financial markets, the government would respond. I think the post-June 2013 interbank market crisis period is, is a prime example. Um, short-term money market rates were extremely high, um, 8 to 10 percent. Wealth management products to get money back into the banks were being offered similarly at about 8 to 10 percent. And many you know, highly educated uh, you know, people I know pretty well, uh, Chinese analysts, economists, you know, took substantial portions of their savings and placed them in uh, Chinese wealth management products at 8 to 10 percent, a level that would indicate a high degree of stress in any other developed financial system. And why did they do so? Because they said, obviously, the government's going to have to support this system. Now, at some point, however, and I think you're reaching that level right now if you look at what happened with the peer-to-peer -peer protests in Beijing in, um, on August 6th of this year when all of a sudden that government 
uh, commitment to shore up the banking system looks like it's supposed to be the same as a government commitment to shore up uh, an essentially unstable peer-to-peer lender. And those are not the same degrees of government commitment. And when an investor thinks that ultimately they will be made whole um, or that if they protest loudly enough or demand compensation loudly enough, they might be made whole, um, that's indicative of ultimately the flight-to-risk type mentality that has really engendered rapid growth within the Chinese financial system. And so what's interesting to us and why we think, you know, what about about credibility that's so important is that it prevents asset sell-offs and financial crises before they happen. You don't necessarily have to um, take steps to de-risk yourself. You can just wait for government intervention and, and responses. And we've seen this take place. One of the examples we discuss in the report is uh, the Sealand Securities scandal involving entrusted bond contracts in December 2016, which was a very peripheral institution, but having an outsized impact on the market, um, precisely because it was uh, seen as potentially questioning um, the uh, an entire asset class, and therefore you had a sudden repricing of risk, you know, throughout the financial system. Um, there's an interesting there's an interesting wrinkle in in Chinese society, right, where the social safety net is incredibly low. So if you get sick or if you get unemployed, there's no real expectation in society that the government should be there to um, to to help you out. But if you're a middle class Chinese or upper class Chinese and you and you own a financial product that blows up, it sure as hell is the government's fault. And they and they sure as hell should be there to bail you out. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's a widespread perception. And I think there's a perception that's often made that anything extended through through the financial system has government support and it was only could have been only could have existed with government backing. And so therefore, you know, what you saw with the peer-to-peer protests is no real substantive response yet anyway. Um, but nonetheless a very insistent demand from investors who had lost substantial savings. Um, you know, relatively wealthy uh, investors um, from an insistent demand that they that they at least uh, receive some compensation for their losses in what were very risky investments. There was never any government guarantee on these products. There was never any explicit commitment, com- explicit or implicit commitment um, from local or central government authorities that there would be any restitution in the event of loss. But nonetheless, people showed up based on that expectation. And why did they do that? Because Beijing has a very strong track record of acting in this way. And so that was one of the factors that led us to start to explore uh, the notion of credibility as this source of support uh, within the financial system. And what's most interesting now, as the financial system has become riskier and increasingly dependent upon Unstable, both unstable liabilities and informal credit. Um, that credibility is being forced to be extended further and further into the peripheral reaches um, of the financial system, where Beijing doesn't really have a strong incentive to provide support. And as that credibility becomes stretched thin, you know, we think that more normal uh, patterns of risk aversion and risk pricing, um, as Beijing will will essentially step away. In uh, from support of all of these assets uh, at some point, um, we think more normal risk pricing is going to start um, becoming far more common in Chinese financial markets. 
Could you talk a little bit about how you think the political bargain is changing and the implications for the financial system there? Sure. I mean, and this is a central point in terms of uh, the importance of credibility. You know, in the past, the political bargain for between Chinese uh, borrowers and uh, between Chinese depositors, households and corporates, and those that place their savings within the financial system, um, they were in essence being promised faster economic growth, rising standards of living, and it was largely through employment and wage-based growth. Increasingly, you know, most of the growth in Chinese household net worth has been in the form of asset prices, primarily property, uh, but also in the form of financial market assets. And so all of a sudden, your standard of living, your your potential gains um, from participating within the Chinese financial system is increasingly dependent upon a financial system that is taking a lot more risk. And so that's how the political bargain has essentially changed. Beijing is being forced to essentially defend uh, portions of the financial system that it wouldn't have otherwise because of its penchant for uh, essentially political stability. And you can view it as, up until this point, a preference for the growth of financial risk relative to a preference for the growth of potential political risk. And I think that's really what's changing at this point, especially under the deleveraging campaign, where the financial risks as they've accumulated have finally been deemed to be significant enough, enough political risk and yeah. potentially becoming a political risk on their own. Exactly. So uh, there's a tweet that I saw the other day um, responding to Donald Trump uh, saying that he had a good conversation with Xi Jinping on trade. And, you know, he's like looking forward to the G20 meeting in Argentina. And I think Chijer uh, Zhang said that he was admiring this magical tweet and that it is pumping up the UN and Chinese stocks more effectively than the PBOC and all the official Chinese comments. So my question for you is whether or not Donald Trump has more credibility than Xi Jinping when it comes to the Chinese economy. <laughs> uh, I would, I do not think so. Um, and obviously, I mean, there's numerous factors that explain what's happening in uh, currency markets at any point, but a lot of the market reaction that occurred there in, in our view was largely just because of the need to reprice many emerging market assets in the face of a, you know, a possible ongoing negotiation that might have the effect of offsetting some of the tariff implementation or escalation further on. Um, often you have markets when they're very positioned very heavily in one direction, when all of a sudden you need to consider a different possibility, the repricing occurs very quickly. Um, nonetheless, that's also occurred very quickly, and we're kind of moving back in towards a um, depreciating renminbi, largely because you still have very divergent monetary policy conditions between China and the United States. And this is what we address in the book. You know, over time, given the size of this Chinese debt burden, China is going to need lower interest rates in aggregate. It'll also need better pricing of interest rates among some of the riskier portions of the financial system. But if you need lower interest rates in aggregate and you probably need to keep responding to instances of financial stress domestically, uh, that's probably going to point to a weaker exchange rate over over time. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's clearly in, in the report in terms of the logic therein. But in terms of, of credibility, I think it has a lot more to do with the the track record of how Beijing will be responding to financial stress, especially it doesn't have much to do, it doesn't have much to do with the renminbi itself. Do you want to uh, conclude with how this falls apart and what the path forward entails? 
Sure. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it has to uh, to fall apart per se. Our point would be that there are rising episodes of stress within the Chinese financial system that, that you can date, as I mentioned, largely from the June 2013 interbank market crisis. And Beijing has has responded to those instances of stress um, very aggressively and has built up this track record of credibility in such a response. Uh, what's most interesting to us is what happens when that credibility changes. And essentially, that commitment to near-term financial stability is at odds with the commitment to long-term financial reform. And it's not that financial reform will necessarily uh, go forward or that Beijing wouldn't prioritize stability over reform. We've seen that time and again. Uh, the issue is that you're not going to be able to grow the financial system uh, sustainably at its previous pace. So you can't continue business as usual policy precisely because the financial system is already almost half of global GDP in assets. There are real limits to its ability to keep being funded at the at the current level, or particularly at the current exchange rate uh, over time. So what's most interesting to us is that as these uh, threats to financial stability start to materialize, Beijing is going to have incentives to change their own reaction function and to try to make it more sustainable over time. And it's in that interaction where uh, the medium-term um, environment has changed, where all of a sudden you can't you need to reprice risks within the financial system. You're not sure if peer-to-peer uh, -peer products are going to be supported. You're not sure if corporate bond defaults are going to be large enough that you need to reprice um, different assets. You're not sure if local governments uh, will continue to receive support or to support their financing vehicles or their bonds, that assets will need to be repriced in China and that will create uh, additional risk. So that's where I think that um, we're going in the next few years with uh, more of these risks starting to materialize within the Chinese financial system. It's very hard to say exactly which one, as we mentioned in the report. But as the system has increased in complexity and you're now starting to slow credit growth very aggressively under the deleveraging campaign, it seems rather inevitable that, that some financial stress will emerge uh, somewhere. And we're already seeing some of that this year with the pressures on corporate bond defaults and local government financing vehicle, the risk of local government financing vehicle defaults uh, in particular. So I think that's what we're watching very carefully going forward. It also, as we discussed in the report, has implications for how we should view Chinese financial system. None of these characteristics that have promoted stability are really intrinsic to China's political system itself or to the China model as we kind of understand it. This is merely a byproduct of a you know, very long-standing pattern of intervention and a stated preference for political stability. And that's a, uh, you know, a very different conclusion than, than much of the commentary that you see attached to uh, the potential resilience of the Chinese financial system over time or this belief that China is somehow you know, different or, or exceptional. Um, our view fundamentally is that um, there's there are very few ways to avoid some of the pressures that uh, are building up anytime you have a credit expansion this large. And what was most interesting to us is is why why China has avoided this so so for so long, but also uh, why that condition, uh, along with the political bargain at the heart of the Chinese financial system, does seem to be changing at present. Logan, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Much appreciated. 
China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the